hear the living and the life-giving word of God. Let's hear it first from Jesus. One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first commandment and greatest. And the second commandment is like it in significance and importance. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I am giving you a new command. An all-inclusive command, not a new one to add to the many commands you already have, but one command that transcends, that renders obsolete, that replaces, encapsulates, and fulfills every other command. Love one another. In the same way I have loved you, you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my followers if you love one another. And the word of God as Paul grasped it and explained it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship so that I can boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes always perseveres. When everything is gone, burned off, and burned up, love alone will be left standing and ruling. Where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part. We prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talk like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, I see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And until then, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these to press into that completes faith and validate hope, it's love. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You, dear brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not dare use your freedom to indulge your own fleshly wants and desires. Rather, serve one another in love. Humbly. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And so I say, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And the fruit, 
the outward indicator that makes walking by the Spirit visible and useful and relevant is love, which will produce joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit by loving each other. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And the word of God, through the mouth of Jesus' closest human friend, John. Dear friends, let us love one another. Because what comes from God is love. Everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, Since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God becomes alive in us and through us. His love is made complete in us. We love because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this one command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And God's word is finally understood by even Peter. So, Now that you have purified yourselves by surrendering all in into the story of the transforming good news of Jesus, with God's Spirit alive in you, you have an authentic love for each other as brothers and sisters in you. So live it out by loving one another strenuously from your heart with all of your heart. This is God's word. Father, by your spirit in us, may our eyes be open to see the richness of your grace in Jesus to us and the power, the empowerment of your grace in Jesus for us so that we will want to show and claim the courage to live in the reality of the story in which we live, the story of a God whose love, whose selfless dying love conquered everything against us and whose love is the only real thing that we need working for us and through us. And in Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. I almost feel like reading those powerful scriptures one more time and just calling it a day. I'd encourage you to listen to them again online. Grab the PowerPoint online and should show up there by Tuesday morning. And because those are the scriptures that point us to the all-in call we want to talk about today. This fall, we're looking at the five things we say we want to be our core values, what we want to be known for that describe this all-in kind of life. Number one, surrendering to God's word. And as we've talked about it, surrendering into the story that God is creating and has recorded. Which brings us to see the transforming gospel, the transforming good news of Jesus that by his grace I can change my story. And it flows out in a generous worship, loving God with all our heart and soul and mind. And I like to call this living in the rhythm of the story. Those are 
the sort of the internal and vertical components of this all-in thing, although in worship it starts pointing outward. Worship is giving to God what's due him, which is everything. It involves our giving and living. Today and next week, we're going to move into the two ways that we are called to live out the story. We call our fourth value courageous community, but really it's summed up in one word, love. Love as defined by Jesus, love, which is the climax of the story. I love the word courage as we talk about community because the most courageous choice you can make is to love well. Love takes guts. There are so many places we could go in the Bible to talk about courageous community, what love looks like. Do you realize how many love lists there are in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 13, we heard that in our scripture reading. Galatians 5, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the outward, useful, life-giving sign of God's Spirit in us is not some gifts of the Spirit, it's love, which leads to joy and peace. Ephesians 4 and 5, Colossians 3, both are just expositions of what Jesus, the transforming gospel of Jesus, produces through us, and it basically explains love. Jesus' two most famous stories, the Good Samaritan, prodigal son, which is about a God with a prodigal love, outside and above human standards love, and an elder brother who could not join in the Father's love. What I'd like us to do for the next few minutes today, in order to get our hearts ready to celebrate the most courageous, most life-transforming, world-shaping act of love made real, is to just look through that peak chapter in the most theologically dense and logically reasoned book of the Bible, the book of Romans, chapter 12. All of that theology of the first 11 chapters and that logic boiled down to living it out in courageous community. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 12, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, look, a Bible look in a Bible app, probably the easiest one to get and use is, is the, the one listed there, Bible.com, and uh, turn there. And in Romans chapter 12, we're going to see three things about courageous community. We're going to see how we find the courage to love well. And second, why it is that it takes courage to love well. And third, what the only real barrier to loving well is, to living in courageous community, what it is, the, the one barrier. Where do we find the courage to love well? That's where the st- chapter starts off. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The only place to ultimately find the courage to love well is the courage-sacrificing love of Jesus in view of God's mercy, which is a summary of the entire first 11 chapters of Romans, how God in his mercy in Jesus and his work on the cross for us, his sacrificial work on the cross made us his children. And claimed us to be his own. That's the first 11 chapters. Everything God did to make us his. Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy. To simply do what Jesus did. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Worship is not words. We say to God and hear from God. What we do here in this room is understanding and reminding ourselves of the story, calling ourselves to learn and live in the story. It should prompt us to worship with our life, but it's not its essence what happens in here. The measure of a worship service is not how I feel when I'm in the room or leave the room. The measure of a worship service is what I'm inspired to do in living it out Monday morning or perhaps even as I walk out those doors and stand in the foyer. Or go to the car and begin the conversation as a family. That is where worship begins. 
I love the way Dave summed it up last week, and it's why I call this idea of worship living in the rhythm of the story. In grace, God gives me what I don't deserve. God's leading edge is grace, giving me what I don't deserve in Jesus. And through worship, I give God what he does deserve. That's the core rhythm of the all-in life. What did God give in Jesus? All of himself. What does it mean to respond to that? Not words, but giving to God all of myself. It's the basic, rational, logic, logical response. And that's why we sometimes say that, that a person who is a Christian is simply one who gives that part of himself that they know to that part of God they know. And, and that's the journey. The, the, the rhythm of seeing something more about the beautiful powerful mercy of God as I realize a little bit more of my own inadequacy, the own depths of my failure, the, the, the darkness of who I am. Give that part of myself I know to that part of God I know. That's the rhythm. In view of God's mercy, having an, the incredible undeserving love of God in Jesus as the dominating influence in my thinking. Dave recently told us about a, a, the time a friend asked him, why are you a Christian? And, and he froze, trying to bring to his mind the intellectual, logical arguments he'd studied. They didn't come, and, and he just finally blurted out, hope. In Jesus, I find the hope I'm looking for. And it was what inspired his friend to pursue Jesus. He, he's right. Hope is a big deal, because as I look into the future, it is so easy, and it's getting easier even for optimistic people, to see that the greater weight is increasingly inside, on the side of the no hope side of the scale. In the story God is writing and started to write in real time, in real life, in Jesus, I see the foundation for the hope I need. But for me, equal to that and perhaps foundational to that hope is that the story God is inviting me to surrender into in Jesus is the only story that helps me see and understand that the love my heart longs for is real. You ever thought about that? There is nothing in what we can learn through science. There is no evolutionary explanation for why it is that I long for love. That love is anything more than sentiment or wishful thinking, or a bargaining chip to get what I need. There is nothing in what we know from science or social science that convinces me that the kind of love Jesus calls for, putting others above myself, is, is actually worth it. It's only in Jesus himself. There are no other religions that show and provide love, like the love from God that is made real and powerful and effectual in Jesus. By the way, if you're struggling with intellectual arguments about faith. Don't stop struggling. And please don't hear me say that faith is simply blind and unintellectual. God created us with minds to think. But what I'm saying is, think. Think deeper. Think broader than simply scientific categories and theories. Ask yourself, what is it my heart is really looking for? Is it not a love that will never let me go? A love that will always carry me through. A love that fills and frees and empowers me to look past myself and make a difference in my world. A few chapters earlier, Paul said, God demonstrates his own love for me in this. That while I was still failing, falling short of the glory of God for which I was created, Jesus filled that gap. It's not about what I do, it's about what he's done. His love gap, his love filled the falling sh the short of the glory of God I was created for a gap. He did it. As we get back to Romans 12, Paul goes on in this passage to say that when the truth of the good news of the love of Jesus renews and transforms the way I think, I will be able to test and approve what God's will is, that it's good, that it's pleasing, that it's perfect. 
So, what do you think Paul is talking about when he says God's will? And that thinking about Jesus' amazing, merciful love will renew our minds to see that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Well, what was it Jesus said God's will was? One thing. Love one another as I have loved you. God's will is for us to follow Jesus, and following Jesus means loving each other as Jesus loved us. Laying down our life for others like he laid down his life for us. Well, yeah, yeah that's true, but that's not all God's will is, is it? What did Jesus say? Something about one thing? In one sense, that's all it is. But how do I know that's what Paul is thinking about here when he talks about God's will? Well, because he says so. Look down verse 9. Beginning at verse 9, he describes how we are to live in real time like Jesus with a courageous, self-dying, others First kind of love. In this carefully reasoned book by a highly trained lawyer, Paul's wrapping up his case. And here he takes us, beginning at verse 9, and actually right through to the chapter of, of 15, the middle of chapter 15, commanding us to live out the self-dying, others-first love of Jesus. Paul is just fleshing out Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you. Verse 9 is, is, is the beginning of this great love list. And There are more of those one another commands in the last part of this chapter than all of the one another's in every other place in the New Testament combined. Love must be sincere, pure, wholehearted, without hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Calling something love when the motivation is really for me to look good, feel good, to get something in return. That's not love. Be devoted, devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's this statement, in view of looking intently at the sacrificial mercy of Jesus for me, what he did for me in dying for me, that provides me with all of the courage I need to love well. Why? Because, think about it, what is it you need in order to demonstrate courage? Well, you need some sort of of motivation and power. Something to inspire you to do that, right? Can't get more of that than the love of Jesus for me and the resulting power of the Spirit in me. Well, I, I need an example to see that it's been done and worth it. It's been done in Jesus. I need something that tells me this may be impossible, but what if it works? It's Jesus. Jesus has showed it to us, and how did it work for him? Well, yeah, he died. But then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In Jesus, in view of God's mercy, we can see this just might work. And if it doesn't work, I'm simply standing in the greatest love of the universe and walking with the greatest lover of all time. Why would I not demonstrate the courage to love well? Let me just bring this home here for some of us today. Some of us are here because we know we need something. Maybe not even sure exactly what it is. And this may be the place. We're hoping this is the place we'll find it. Could it be that you, what you came here for was to find the love you're looking for? And to figure out why it is that you keep failing at love? The place is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Someone who literally died for you in love so that you could be his. So you could be lifted up by love, filled with his love for you. So you don't have to stoop to begging for love in all the wrong places and be disappointed by a stupid love choice one more time. The cross of Jesus fills me with love and empowers me to love. So, what does this passage tell us about why it is that it's courage we need to love well? Courage to do what? Well, look look again at some of the items on that list. Be, Be devoted to one another. 
devoted. That's sort of a worship word, isn't it? You say you're devoted to God? God's saying, don't even try and go there with me. I'm not buying it unless I see you following Jesus and being devoted to each other. And that means dying to yourself and putting others above yourself. The reason love takes courage is that the nature of a love that Jesus modeled for us, a love that truly adds value, that makes it the only truly renewable resource in the world, is a love that embraces the risk of actually honoring one another above myself in my mind, in my heart, in my priorities, putting others above myself in my time, in my energy, in my focus. Every single one of the New Testament writers who talk about love have a unified voice. Love, courageous love, loving Jesus kind of love, courageously embraces the risk of actually thinking about and putting others above myself, above, not accepting them as, not just accepting them as equal to me, not above myself after I've taken care of myself. Apart from Jesus' love, the best I can do is to put others equal to me, well, after I've taken care of myself. But what I have in Jesus is the someone who takes care of me who has elevated me above himself. Yes, he did, folks. He elevated us above him. That's how Paul explains what he did in Philippians chapter 2. He did not consider his equality with God something to be clung to, but he made himself nothing, putting himself under me in order to bring me in love to God. Paul got that from what Jesus said he did. Put me above himself. Greater love, said Jesus, is no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. What's dying for someone if it's not putting them ahead of your life and you? And his very next statement after this was, you are my friends if you do what I commanded, which is to love one another as I have loved you. Putting others above yourself. Jesus was so clear. All the New Testament writers are so clear. Loving God back is not about saying fancy words to God or some bodily posture in worship. Loving God sacrificially is not about taking the risk of giving my job and going to someplace overseas. Well, it might be about that for some of us, but every single one of us is called to follow Jesus in taking the risk of love. Don't tell me you'll love God. You can't see if you're not loving the brother. You can't see. Honoring them above yourself. In Jesus, I have everything I need to take the huge risk of actually making others more important in my mind, my heart, and my action than myself. But, but you don't understand. I was abused. I just can't risk it. Were you abused more than Jesus was abused? And he did it willingly for you to absorb your abuse and help you see one who loves you far more than the person who hurt you. But, but, but I didn't have good models growing up. What about Jesus? He is our model. We don't need any other models. That's why we need Jesus in view of God's mercy, taking in to our minds and hearts the mercy of God. It's doable even for you. You know, most of the issues we wrestle with, most of the issues we make the biggest issues of are, are relatively simple. Can you imagine Jesus as a marriage counselor? Stop arguing. Go home and love each other. Love is not a feeling. It's simply putting the other person first. It's not that complex. If Jesus was here on this Thanksgiving Sunday, and he is, but if he chose to speak audibly, there's only one thing he would say. The only thanks I'm looking for is for you to show it by loving each other. So what is the one, the only real barrier 
to showing that kind of courage. Just living out what Jesus has lived in us. Putting others actually above myself in my, heart, my mind, in my heart, and my actions. Well, we alluded to it, but Paul actually addresses it head on. We, we missed that part because we skip right from verse 2 to verse 9. Paul doesn't go straight from talking about life-transforming, mind-renewing love of Jesus to talking about what it looks like in practice. He has this little statement in verse 3 of chapter 12 to describe the only real barrier to courageous love. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with a measure of faith God's given you. The one barrier to putting others above myself is that it is so contrary to everything my heart screams for, to the way my natural mind thinks. I so quickly come up with rationalizations, with excuses for not putting others first because I tend to think I will lose. Lose what? What will you lose? Your status? If somebody is above me, will I lose my status? Think about that. To love someone and put them first, what does it do to your status in their eyes? It elevates you. To put others above yourself, what does that do to your status in God's eyes? It's God saying, that's my kid. That's my kid. It doesn't diminish my status in God's eyes. It elevates it. The only person in whose eyes you are diminished when you put others above yourself is your own. Or in the eyes of someone you don't want to be like anyway. Another self-referenced, self-exalting person. A bad example. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather with sober judgment. That is the centerpiece of what Paul means when he says that thinking about the incredible, empowering, elevating love of Jesus actually transforms the way I think. It allows me to get myself out of the equation. As Keller says about this, it's not about thinking less of myself. It's simply about thinking of myself less. Bottom line, the only barrier to living out the courage of loving well when I've seen the mercy of God and Jesus for me is I really don't think I need that mercy because I think too highly of myself. He goes on in the next verses. We're not going to work through that, but he talks about the gifts that the body of Christ needs. But, but even here, the, your gift doesn't belong to you. It's not given to you to make you look good or feel good about yourself. You belong to others, he says. So what you have, your gifts, belong to the body, not you. I had an experience a number of years ago that was rather benign. It was actually funny in the end, but it made me realize how much we tend to think of ourselves and how that impairs our ability to see what is needed in a situation. Our our son was still in college and he's in his early to mid-30s now, so it was a number of years ago, and we were living in northern BC and he was working for one summer near Nordegg in Alberta at Frontier Lodge. And he he and uh, a friend of his was a cross-country mountain bike specialist. And everything I heard about this friend, I thought, I want to meet this guy. He is a wonderful guy, loving, caring. He, 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 was, he seemed to be a super guy. And I was missing our son and, and really wanted to see what he was doing. And so on the August long weekend, immediately after church, I hopped in my pickup truck and booted over the mountains to see him. Eight-hour drive to spend one full day with my son. Monday, long weekend. All day I, I, I watched him do his thing at this family camp as he was running this bike festival and, and, and I got permission to join him on a cross-country ride that he was leading and he finished his work day at supper time, people were gone and he said, hey dad, want to see some of the downhill trails that, that the county allowed my buddy and I to build? He and his buddy had, had built some trails on, on one of the hills just outside Nordegg and I said, sure, I'd, I'd never seen a downhill trail. But when he dragged me over to the shop to pick out a bike, I suddenly realized that by seeing, he did not mean just observing. 
And so it was that I got my baptism by fire into downhill biking. I stood on top of that hill and looked over, and I felt the same feeling as the first time I took a black diamond ski run. He said, oh, it's not that bad, Dad. This is an easy one. <laughs> okay. He gave me a quick lesson, told me, and, and he, he just said, just when, when there's that jump down there, see that jump? Um, that's a tabletop. You're supposed to clear it, but don't bother about clearing it, but just try jumping and, 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 uh, and he said, just sort of preload it when you hit the bottom of the jump and just push hard down on it and just propel you up and, and, and no problem. So I went. I did it. I actually got some air not enough to clear the tabletop, mind you, but I landed on top of it and didn't fall over. My son is yelling from the top, way to go, Dad. You're a natural. You got it. And I believed him. And so feeling very good and somewhat confident about my newfound skill, I kept going. As I approached the next jump, I thought, hmm, these young guys, they probably in a little bit of a hurry because this jump is at a bit of an angle. And you don't make a jump at an angle. They needed my level and my level eyes. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll, I can make up for that. And I'm just thinking really fast. I thought, okay, I'll just make sure I, I jump straight. And I jumped higher than the last time. And when I was in the air, I figured out why that was at an angle. Because the ride out was going this way, not this way. And I landed head first in a big thicket, thankfully. Um... But I was all tangled up in my bike, and I was actually laying on my back with my feet tangled up, and I couldn't get them out. And I thought, no problem, the guys are behind me. Now I knew why I went first. And, um, and so I heard his buddy coming down. And he came down. And he hit that jump at an angle, and he got the biggest air I'd ever seen. And he went from the side like this and flicked his tires at me, and then he landed, and phew, he kept going. He didn't stop. Thankfully, my son was there, and he's a good Samaritan. Saw the guy standing beside the side of the road, lying there, hurt. And um, so we got to the bottom. And, and I said to his buddy, I said, didn't you see me at the bottom of that jump? He said, oh, yeah. But I thought you were just trying to get down as low as you could to get a better picture of me jumping. But this guy was not a self-centered guy. He's one of the most gracious, kind, other-centered men I'd met. But our first response is to think of every situation we are in with me at the center. It's just so natural. And we tend to bleed from our environment more than we put in it and way more that we realize. We even tend to think of courage in self-referenced ways. We blow up at someone in some way in which we think we're not treated well. And what do we say? Do you know how much courage it took to speak up? It didn't take courage, it just took pent-up anger. It doesn't take courage to speak out in anger, it takes courage to control our anger and to speak in love and humility and to confess when we didn't control ourselves. It doesn't take courage to give up and pack it in, it takes courage to come back and re-engage. It doesn't take courage to demand my rights and criticize, it takes courage to listen and look in the mirror and see how self-centered I am and put others first. You're only really living in the story when you find yourself living out the story. And living out the story is simply living in everyday, mostly mundane, in the trenches kind of ways, the self-denying, self-dying love of Jesus, courageously risking putting others' needs first and helping to create a grace-rich, love-filled, mercy-ruling environment in the name of Jesus Let's wrap it up. There's this wonderful life-changing book that was recommended to LaDonna and I by one of our mentors. The book is called Change Your Questions, Change Your Life. It's a very helpful little book. It doesn't use biblical content or claim to have a Christian message. But for me, the biggest long-term help in that little book is the title itself. Because in the title is the essence of the life-transforming, mind-renewing worship that Paul is talking about. Change your questions, and you'll change your life. But this passage forces me to ask three questions that will change, 
radically change the way I do love, uh, do life and love, and will actually help me live in the story by living it out. The questions we usually ask are things like, okay, what am I going to get out of it, or when will I get something out of it? What's in it for me? Why does God allow this to happen to me? Why am I not being recognized? Why am I not given the promotion? What are all those questions? They're me questions, right? What questions does this passage invite me to ask to change my life? Number one, because we tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, the first question is, what would humility look like in this situation? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. To not think of myself more highly than I ought. It's, it's simply about humility. We tend to think of negative things as humiliating, right? Well, what's humiliation? It's believing that I look less in someone's eyes than I deserve to look. But what if we said, hmm, there's actually nothing wrong with being humbled. Really? There's something fundamentally right about it. I can choose to be humble, and then it's no longer humiliation. It actually opens our eyes to see how we can leverage even this next, this negative situation to serve others in love. Question number two. This question has to do with this gifts piece that Paul talked about in verses four to nine. You know, we tend to think of how we want to work in a situation, of what we will get fulfillment from doing in a situation. That's our natural bent. But when we realize that my gift does not belong to me and I belong to this team and the purpose, I belong to this body, I will look at it totally differently. Look at the need. What is it that is needed? Not is it, not what is it that I want to do and simply ask the question, what is life calling out of me at this point? It was from a very new agey leadership coach that LaDonna got that question. She was on a management team he was working with to help them be more effective and he told them just flat out, no bones about it, that to be effective in leading people, you cannot say, well, that's not how I do things. That's not what I'm good at. Because it's not about you, he said. When you come to work in the morning, just look at what the life in front of you is requiring from you and give it. It's not about what I want to bring. If we look at it that way, we are trying to conform life around me. The question is, what is life, the situation I'm in, calling out of me today? Last Sunday after service, someone came up to me and asked a question. He said, when it comes to implementing this whole new two-service strategy, which is quite complex and we're working hard at it, he said, what are you doing about this piece? And he said, quickly, I'm, I'm not wanting to assume you don't have a plan. It's just I, I see a gap there and I'm wondering if there's a plan. And before I could answer, he said, because if there is no plan, that's a gap I think I could fill. And it happened to be an area that the people who were in charge of it were realizing there was a gap but couldn't figure out how to fill it. There's a person who's opening his eyes to see what's needed and say, you know what, it's not going to benefit me at all. I can't even understand Chinese. But I think I could help fill that. What's life calling from me? today. And the last question comes from Andy Stanley's wonderful new book, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. What is love? What is the love of Jesus for me requiring of me today? Jesus has loved me with an everlasting, elevating, affirming, filling to overflowing kind of love that he has empowered me and called me to unleash and whatever step I take this week, what would happen if I woke up every day and rather than thinking about what I needed, what I don't have, what I can't do, what would happen if I changed the question? What does the freeing, empowering love of Jesus for me require of me today? LaDonna and her family are in the process of letting go of a mother who won't be with us for much longer. A mother who struggled with her own self-image issues in some ways. She had no education because she worked in a servant-type job to put her husband through medical school. If ever there was a person who put others first, it was her. 
She's also a person whose children and whose grandchildren all love Jesus and follow Jesus all in. And every one of them will say that one of the key influences their life is a mother who in Jesus' name put others first. She's got adult grandchildren who are using their precious vacation time and personal time to come and check on her, come all across Western Canada to check on her and clean her and care for her, or clean her apartment and care for her, and tell stories. There's one story that came out this week from LaDonna that, that seems to be a little thing, but actually it was a, it, it was a paradigmatic of her whole life. One Mother's Day when LaDonna was a child, her father had bought a nice corsage for mom to wear to church in their nice, proper, downtown Vancouver church. Now that was in more formal days. Mom got to church and probably felt somewhat conspicuous wearing this nice corsage. And in the church foyer, she saw a woman whose marriage had failed and she was now a struggling single mom. And she took her corsage off, pinned it on that woman, and with a sincere, joyful smile said to her, Happy Mother's Day. LaDonna's dad struggled with some hurt feelings. And from LaDonna's memory, to this day, he's never bought her another corsage. No point. But to this day, he would tell that story with pride, respect, and admiration. Because that's how she lived her life. You see, it's the little things that make the biggest differences. The little things that even you can do to change an environment for the better or for the worse. And it's that renewing, transforming love of Jesus that we get to declare and celebrate again today. Would those who are serving us come forward? As we participate in this, you're invited to take an element as it comes by and hold it. If you can say with integrity, I'm saying yes to Jesus. I, I want to live that all in life. If, if, if you never said that, and you think, I wonder if this is for me. Well, if you can say yes, if you want it to be for you, it's you. Take it. And for the first time, say yes to Jesus. But would you tell somebody you've done that? Because this is Jesus' invitation to you to say, I see how much your dying love has done for me. I'm going to receive it all. That's what this is about. As they come by, if you want to say yes, if you can say yes, take it and then just hold it until we can all share together. As we're singing, as you're reflecting, holding the love of Jesus in your hand, would you ask yourself those questions? What would humility look like in the situation I'm struggling with? What is life calling out of me? that I could give what does the love of Jesus for me require of me today Jesus gave it all his body was broken let's pray thank you God Lord Almighty for loving us so much that you gave your one and only son to die for us on the cross we thank you Lord Jesus Christ for offering yourself as a living sacrifice, as a sacrifice for us on the cross. We pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to guide us so that we can offer our body as a living sacrifice, yeah. so that we can actually exemplify the love that we received. Uh -huh. Because that is, which is true is that he loved us first. And because he loved us, that we would have the strength and the spirit to be able to love others. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.